We would like to acknowledge that the following episode of Tempo was recorded June 2023. There is a reference in conversation to Finnish composer Kaya Sariaho, who has since sadly passed away. Sydney Youth Orchestras acknowledge the Gadigal, Wangal and Baramadigal people of the Darug and Eora Nations, the traditional custodians of the land on which we perform and rehearse, and their connections to land, water and community. We, the young musicians of SYO, come together from the lands of many nations and peoples. We pay our respects to elders past and present. The original storytellers of these lands where we learn and create music today. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and honour the continuation of the oldest music practice in the world. If you could hear the orchestra of the future, what would it sound like? We see the world around us, but we very much hear the world around us. Welcome to Tempo. Proudly presented by Sydney Youth Orchestras. It was my whole social life as well, you know, with SYO on the weekends as I was a teenager and everything. Tempo speaks with some of the biggest names in orchestral music and explores their journey from youth orchestra to world stage. The violin was just the vehicle to get the music out there because people are impacted by that. And it features questions from us. With your host and renowned Australian conductor and SYO alumni, Matthew Curie. Hello, I'm Matthew Curie and you're listening to Tempo. My guest today is the extraordinary Claire Edwards. Claire is an all-rounder. She's an artistic director, a performer, a teacher, and a composer. She has graced the world's stages, working with heavyweights like Harrison Birtwistle, Untuk Chin, and Steve Reich, and she has hosted Play School. Through her work with Ensemble Offspring, she has brought important new works to Australian audiences and championed a new wave of Australian composers. And as a percussionist, she has performed a staggering number of solo works, including over 50 works written especially for her. Claire, thanks for joining me, and can I start at the very beginning and ask you, what is your earliest musical memory? Oh, that's not a question I get asked very often, Matthew. Yeah, so my earliest musical memory, I guess, is when I lived in the country kind of area around Melbourne with my family, just around when I was five, and one of the girls who I went to school with, she was a lot older than me, and she played the piano. So I remember being very enamoured by her as a person and I think therefore also the music that she made on the piano and that was the reason why I started playing piano and started having lessons when I was five. So of course we know you as a percussionist, how long did it take for you to get into music and then get into percussion? I mean I don't know about you but I got the bug pretty early I would say like right from the start. (laughs) I was very in love with making music. I don't think I ever was, my ear wasn't great because I learnt piano from more of a reading kind of style rather than Suzuki. But I loved practicing in a weird way. And I never really had that moment where I wanted to give up and my mum had to kind of push me through. I just always wanted to keep going. And then how I got into percussion was just that I wanted to play with other people. So I was like a lonely pianist, I guess. You know me and I'm a very social person. So in the end, for me, what kind of kept me going in music as a teenager was really the social aspect of making music. So joining Sydney School Symphonic Wind Ensemble as a percussionist and sort of teaching myself how to play. And also Sydney Youth Orchestra and being at the Sydney Conservatorium and all those kind of 
social music making opportunities. I just relished those. I totally get that. The social aspect is a big one. So what age did the percussion start for you? Well, I joined Swee when I was about 11 or 12, but I didn't have lessons. So I just did it for fun, really. I happened to be part of a cohort that was really, Steve Williams was conducting and we went to the Toowoomba National Band Championships and I think we even won. And that was when I was about 12. Everyone else was much older than me. I'm not sure I was very good at percussion. I just played mallet percussion because I wasn't allowed to play anything else like all the other guys, they just played the snare drum and the timpani and stuff. (laughs) And so they loved having me because they never wanted to play those parts anyway type of thing. Oh, that's interesting. Why is that? Well, I think, you know, the very bare bones kind of percussion paradigm is you either start on piano or drum kit and if you start on drum kit, you're not the best reader. So you don't really want to play mallet percussion instruments because it's harder and it's not as fun. And then I had the opposite issue. I came from piano. I found like I couldn't play snare drum rolls and I couldn't do all those kind of more drum kit related things. I see. When you changed to percussion, you'd already had what, five or six years of piano under your belt. Is that right? Yeah, and I, but I kept playing piano that whole time. Oh, so I played piano till I was 21. Oh, wow. Okay. I got my LTCL. You can tell me what that is later. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Elmas, whatever. Oh, okay. I thought that was something to do with heavy machinery. Now, if a kid came to you who's five or six and said, I want to learn percussion, would you say that's good and well, but you're better off starting on piano? I would definitely say that. Yeah, right. And is that because piano, you get a holistic approach, you can do harmony and whatnot, and also it's, it's sort of more manageable, I guess, if you're a percussionist and you're yeah. you just less to do, unless you're on a drum kit, I suppose. Yeah, but it's it's very bitsy trying to learn, yeah, not drum kit, so orchestral percussion from a young age. There's smallish amount of teaching I've done at places like Sydney Grammar. I struggle holding my interest because I know that they don't have anything to practice on at home except a, a practice pad. Yeah, right. And it's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Personally, I would say, I mean, I'm not just saying this because this is what I did, but I do really think like honing your musical skill set, which is what piano gives you in the best way possible for anyone, if you hone that to a really high level, you can kind of almost do anything in your teen years as well, but keep doing piano. Like it's just, it's the heart and soul of understanding music. It sounds like you you were bitten by the music bug and the ensemble bug early. When did you think, oh, I'm going to be, this is going to be my career? I don't think anyone ever really thinks that, do they, until a bit later (laughs) when you actually see if it works or not. I mean, I did really well in my HSC and I could have done anything else. In fact, music was the thing that wasn't included in my HSC result. Really? Yes. What was your weakest subject? It was my weakest subject, yes. (laughs) But I knew that something had gone weird with the examining, you know what I mean? Like I wasn't too worried about that. Because I did get into the con on percussion, I knew I didn't want to be a concert soloist pianist. Not that I had major nerve issues, but I I knew that you had to be of a certain kind of stature and want to be by yourself a lot to be a concert pianist. So that's why I sort of thought, oh, I'm going to give percussion a go. But I never thought, oh, yeah, I'm going to be like 
a world famous percussionist, not that I am now, but you know what I mean? Like I didn't go into the con kind of going, this is what I want. I was just seeing what was possible. I think you are, by the way. So that's what's possible has resulted in you being a reasonably world famous percussionist. I'm going to get to the sort of uniqueness of your career really but tell us a little bit about your orchestral experience because even though you've done more ensemble and solo stuff you came up through the youth orchestras like like the rest of us really that for a lot of people including me is often a great mind expanding experience because all of a sudden you're inside these works that you may have heard on cd or maybe brand new to you so is there was there sort of an orchestral moment or first time or something that really sticks out to you i mean in a way yes but you see you are a french horn player And French horn parts in orchestras, in my view, are very different to percussion parts in orchestras in the most part. Now, the good thing about youth orchestras is that, generally speaking, you you switch around the parts, so you're not just playing the crappy triangle part all the time, which is good, because when you start doing casual work with orchestras, you do always get the worst parts. So it's very hard to get experience on, like, the Scheherazade snare drum solo or whatever. But, of course, I did all those excerpts thinking I'd give it a red-hot go. You get to play melodies, right? Like, yeah. there's something for me personally. I think I should have been a cellist or something. Yeah. It Playing all those excerpts that are very short and not very human for my feeling when you're not playing them with the orchestra, I always found very tough. Like, um, mentally, it did, did not hold my interest. I think also those were different times as well because, see, now you can, like, stream a piece online and you can maybe play along with, like, an awesome video by the Berlin Philharmonic and you can feel kind of enveloped by this sound world. We just had CDs from the con and everything was just not as easy, basically, you know, to, to do in that integrated fashion. One of the things I've often thought is the percussion section often has to jump onto a running train somehow, and you, you have this power because you can uh, destabilize or derail that train so easily because you're so strong. Uh, one of the things I often notice as a conductor is that I really have to massage the percussion in, make them feel really comfortable when they do enter because everyone hears them, and yet because of the distance thing, there's that thing where you're not exactly playing with your ear, you've got to play with your eye a little bit more. So I totally get that. I mean, the other thing I, I think I'll, you know, as someone that does a bit of new music myself is, you know, you might do a, a few programs where the percussion has a triangle tinkle there and a bass drum whack there, and that might go on for a couple of weeks, and then you've got some messian or something, and you've got five percussions just up the back going hell for leather for 90% of the piece. And and that's actually fun. Yeah, I do. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. But it's either you've underemployed or overemployed, it seems. To me. Feast or famine. Yeah. It's total feast or famine. And, you know, that suits what I came to the understanding of for me personally was, like, I have so much respect for orchestral percussion players. I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else because I don't do that. Not at all. That's not my personality. I lose concentration when I'm counting 60 bars of rests. I always found that highly challenging and it's not something that really turns me on. Whereas playing heaps of notes really fast on a vibraphone in a Messian Tarangalila symphony, that really turns me on. I get that. One of the things I find interesting about, you know, when we say percussionist is that you're not, unlike any other instrumentalist, you're not really a player of one instrument. I guess there are people that describe themselves as keyboardists, 
But as you mentioned before, there's the, the mallet instruments and then there's the untuned instruments and there's a world of um, both of those. Do you have a favourite instrument that you like to play or...? No one in Australia would describe themselves as a keyboardist, I don't think, because there's not enough work to just play one thing, of course. Like in Japan, there are quite a few marimba players and that's what they do. And that's because Keiko Abe, she set that up as a as a possibility for a career. And that's awesome. But And in America a little bit, but not, not really anywhere else would you just be a marimba player. And I do love the marimba and I play it a lot, but it's really hard. It's like an instrument that you would need to play as much as if you were just a French horn player. It actually requires that much practice to play it well just like one instrument. And we don't really have the time to only devote to one instrument because there are so many other things that we have to prepare. I put myself through that pain reasonably often, even though I know I don't practice enough. I love the sound. I love the challenge of trying to make long notes when that is not the natural tendency of that instrument. That's why I love playing with other instruments, not percussion so much, because I love listening to a violin that I'm playing with and trying to make my sound more like that. And I think that to me is what is really interesting about being a professional musician, those challenges outside of the obsession with like your own instrument and what that means. Yeah, of course, making that connection. Speaking of connections and working with other musicians, a big part of your life has been working with composers. So when did that seed, when was that planted? That was at the con. So I don't know if you remember, we, we started a little group with Matthew Schlomovitz and Damien Ricketson called the Spring Ensemble. And we were the ensemble in residence at Roger Woodward's Sydney Spring Festival, which was at the Eugene Goosens Hall in the ABC each September. And that was my favourite time of the year because we'd rehearse all night, every night, all this crazy ass maybe not that great music, but some great music as well, like Zanarkis and Donna Tony and they came and, like, it was amazing. It was. I remember it well. I performed in a few too. I think I worked with Arvo Pert amongst other people. I think the more I reflect on how I got to where I am, like, it's a combination of really hard work and, like, being, like, not giving up ever and being reasonably pushy. The social aspect of music, you know, and that's what I loved about that as well. Like I found it so exciting that we were all playing together and making this music with the composers there and I could feed back and they would take on board my thoughts and I just loved that whole process. I want to just go back a second there. You said something which most people don't confess to. Obviously, you worked really hard. Obviously, anyone I'm interviewing has worked very, very hard. But you said, and being really pushy. And I think most people would prefer not to be that blunt or that honest, but sometimes it actually is sort of being... There's And there's a nicer way of saying it. I'm a bit tired. So if I wasn't so tired, I probably wouldn't have used the word pushy. Well, let's use the honest way of saying it. So now, when you say that, what do you mean? In what ways were you pushy? I still am. Okay. You, you don't... No one is a concert percussionist who gets work... The type of work that I get, like concertos with orchestras and stuff and, and ensemble offspring festival opportunities and stuff without just constantly reminding people that you're there. And this is the product that I have. And this is the thing that I'm just so passionate about. And, and you need this because it's 
in my view, more interesting than just programming violin and piano concertos all the time. I think you're right. By the way, I don't think that's pushy. I think that's promotional. That's letting people know what you do, what you've got, what you can offer, and just trying to convince them of that. Yeah. I mean, it's not – also, once you get to a point where people know who you are, it is just that's what it is. But see, I don't have a manager, so I don't have someone to do it for me. And you can feel pushy sometimes. (laughs) I, I, I do get that. So, Claire Edwards' manager is the other Claire Edwards. Yeah. Okay. Well, we like them both. So, actually, your work with composers, living composers, to be clear, is quite extraordinary. I mean, through Offspring, I think you've – well, you've commissioned over 300 pieces, I think, just through Offspring. And, of course, there are plenty of works you've done that weren't commissioned. And there's an enormous list of works you've done as a solo percussionist. And I think I said earlier, you've had over 50 works written for you. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here and and say, is there one, one or two that has – extra special resonance is some are some a favorite so you able to do some couple of times a year for years or do they all get sort of done and then it's hard to redo them well one thing that i'm very passionate about is when i or we commission music i'm always thinking about the bigger picture of the context of the work so you know you can't know that this is going to happen every time but i really do try to make sure either for example, my Rhythms of Change solo project, the pieces were written with students in mind because I didn't want another set of pieces where it was just a bit too hard and that was kind of a reason why other people couldn't play the music. And so because it was all music by female composers, I really wanted students to have the possibility of integrating these new works into their recital programs and their Amy B exams and stuff. So I'm always thinking not just about me, because there is a limit to how much I can play the same repertoire. I I actually get bored really quickly, which is a bit of an annoying problem that I have, but I kind of go hard on the repertoire, so I might keep it for two years and then kind of gradually move on. So that's for my solo repertoire. And then for Ensemble of Spring, we play our First Nations composer stuff a lot in repeat, but the actual especially repertoire pieces that are not commissioned by us are really hard to repeat in Australia because we just don't have the audience, we don't have the performing opportunities and and I find that quite frustrating compared to when I lived in Europe. With the commissions, I always try to keep them in our repertoire and find opportunities to program them, again, for that same reason that uh, all music, I think, deserves more than one outing and it's really important like you have to almost force yourself to do it because the press are totally obsessed with the new and the, you know what's next yeah, and and so it's much easier to market in a way something that's a world premiere yeah. than a second performance fair enough that said i don't feel you've quite answered the question so is there a piece or two that you love a little bit more yeah yeah the piece that wasn't actually written for me, but I basically premiered. I did the premiere recording of and the premiere tour of with Nicholas Hodges, the Axe Manual by Harrison Burt Whistle. I guess that stands out because it was sort of like a career-changing moment where it felt like, you know, I hadn't even recorded very much at that point in my career. I was a kind of postgraduate student who I'd won Young Performers and I'd, I had quite a lot of repertoire under my belt and I was a pretty confident performer but I had hardly recorded. And then going into the radio studios in Cologne with like one of the most famous composers in the world and one of the most famous pianists in the world as a 24-year-old girl. Oh, you were that young when that happened. Yeah. 
And it was really confronting and hard. It's hard music. And I found the whole thing really challenging also personally, but I got through it, you know, like I pushed through, we did it. Yes, there was quite a lot of editing, but I'm really happy with the final result. And I always feel so proud if I come across that recording now. I can sort of still hear it's me. You know, I was not, not a lesser musician just because I was younger. And, but I remember freaking out a bit, you know, that, oh, this is Harrison Bertwistle. Yeah, of course. Bertwistle is such a huge name. And that, that is an amazing project. And Nicholas Hodges is, you know, in terms of new music is probably as fine a pianist on the planet as anyone. I don't think there'd be many performers <laughs> that are going to feel that comfortable going in to record Bert Whistle's music in the studio because it's so challenging and it's sort of – it's actually also music that's so visceral. I mean, it's a great recording what you did and you should be proud of it and you're right to be proud of it, but it's sort of one of those pieces that you have to throw yourself in performance and one of those composers. So trying to find that level of <clears throat> while you're in a recording studio and – really get what's done. You've brought up one of those big names and there's a few others. I just want to throw a few of the names at you because I'm really curious as to, you know, because they're such important people, how your experience with them. So another one is Unsuk Chin, who's a composer I'm very familiar with and uh, just writes fantastically for every instrument. How was it working with her? She's pretty crazy. <laughs> okay. Like I think she's well known for being a bit of a kind of like crazy Korean woman who's just, she just kind of ducked into the rehearsals and didn't say that much. And I was just happy that she wasn't picking on me because mm -hmm. it was a concerto with piano. And that concert as well was, it felt like a moment in my career because it was in the the big hall, the Frotezal of the Concertgebouw. Wow. And I got to walk down those, you know, the red stairs at the back. Yes. They look terrifying, those stairs. Oh, my God. So scary. Like, that was the main thing I remembered. Like, don't sleep over, don't sleep over. <laughs> hey, everyone says Because I am a bit clumsy. And there's another name I want to throw you at you. You work with Reich, and even more significantly, I think he allowed you to arrange uh, the Vermont counterpoint for – sorry, it's, it's vibraphones you do it on, isn't it? Xylophone. Xylophone. So, was he reluctant to give permission for that arrangement, or how did that come about? We had already worked together – in the opera house like a few years earlier with Synergy Percussion. I guess that kind of relationship was there and he's very critical. He really liked my improvising. You know, you have to improvise rhythms in drumming and he really liked it. We had that kind of connection and in the end it wasn't too tricky because there is actually another Japanese percussionist who has arranged quite a lot of his music. So she sort of set this precedence for doing it. I'm also really proud of that recording and that was also really hard because every time you record a line... Why don't you explain the piece a little bit? It's like... Ten parts, I think. And so you have to record all the accompaniment lines that you then play with live. But for a CD, of course, you record the whole thing. And so you record, you know, line one, and then the recording engineer keeps stacking the recordings. But the problem is that, like, I think I have pretty good rhythm. But in a piece like that, as soon as they're, they're stacked, you can hear where they're not exactly together. Yeah. Because you're not a robot. Yeah. Yeah, that was really interesting to realise how you naturally play rhythm slightly different, maybe because of the sticking in that moment or whatever. You get to the point that good rhythm isn't metronomic rhythm normally, but actually when you do something like that, it pretty much has to be metronomic, doesn't it? Yeah. Both musical and There's still a bit of a feel within the beat. Yes, exactly. I have to say I think it's fantastic too. I loved 
listening to it because I was doing your research over the last couple of days and I really thought that is a fantastic recording. So I, I, there's so much online to our listeners can listen to of you. I'd certainly recommend that. Too much. <laughs> Too much. It's just ridiculous. Right. I feel exhausted Too when much. I look. Right. Well, <laughs> let's, let's ask our listeners to write in and say which ones you should take down. How about that? We uh, get some. Oh, okay. Right. Sure. <laughs> I want to jump over to. Um... Now I'm scared. <laughs> well, actually, before I leave that, you know, you've had so many extraordinary works written for you and collaborations with great composers. Is there a dream work or a dream composer you think, I would love to make this happen? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few European composers that I feel like if I had stayed over there, I probably would have quite a good connection with now. But because I didn't, in a way, I'm like all the way over here in Australia and it's hard to get in front of them in the way that you would need to to convince them. So, for example, I'm totally obsessed with the chamber music of Kaya Sariaho. I might meet her in Helsinki later in the year and then I would ask her. But, you know, I'd love her to write on some Lost Ringer piece, like, so badly. Tristan Murai is another composer I respect very deeply. But, again, like, it's hard if you don't have a personal relationship with someone. Yeah. And, like, Missy Mazzoli, I do have a personal relationship with, but she's always so bloody busy. Well, that's good. She'll, yeah. she'll have a quiet moment sometime for you, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about Offspring. You mentioned they were formed in for the Sydney Spring Festival, which Roger Woodward so fantastically started. One of the things I've noticed about it is it's quite an unusual setup. It's quite niche and it's with the mixture of instruments. How did you come to that formation? That's not unusual, what we have now. I mean, maybe we've done unusual things over the years, but because of me, we sort of settled on what's called Piero Plus One, which oh, is a very regular instrumentation. Piano, percussion, violin, cello, flute, clarinet. I wanted to sort of set a core instrumentation. We started more as a collective because, well, it helps when there's some repertoire already. And I actually think despite you would think that you would get balance issues with the strings, it actually works pretty well generally, that combination. So we're sort of gradually building with Ensemble Offspring more repertoire for that sextet lineup and then also subsets of that and that's kind of our main focus i'd love to add electric guitar one day but there just aren't that many new music specialist electric guitarists in sydney slash australia unfortunately kind of got to wait for the right people i mean we don't live in europe so yeah it's a much smaller pool yeah exactly and tell me i've noticed that offspring has been you know a great flag flyer for first nations composers and just diversity and representation in general. Tell us a little bit more about your approach to finding new composers and new voices, new works. I mean, it's something that we've become more conscious of in about the last eight years. And I don't know about the rest of the – well, I do know about the rest of the world. I think America, for sure, is really flying the flag for diversity and black musicians and inequality, female gender equality. So the rest of the world has kind of followed pretty well UK and Europe. And I think Ensemble Lost Springs being quite at the forefront of the movement in Australia, because since 2017, when Damien and I programmed an all-female year, just to show, we didn't really make a song and dance about it, we just did it. And that's, we commissioned Lisa Illion and lots of different composers that year. And it was just so great for me as an artistic director because 
I had the opportunity to familiarize myself with all these female composers from around the world. And then, of course, you can't program everyone in one year. So you've got this big list and you end up actually, I've very much ended up commissioning and programming more female than male composers. You know, easier for us because we're, we're not playing the classics. Yeah. So, so we should, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's all new, new or newish music. All the classics of our repertoire from the 20th century are still by male composers. So John Cage, Henry Cowell, Steve Reich, Philip Glass, and they're just the ones in America. You don't think pieces by Unsuk Chin should be there? Or, I mean, I think of. Yeah, yeah, like and they're more recent. Or, I guess you're talking late 20th and then 21st century, I guess. Is yeah, I'm talking more, yeah, like around the kind of middle to late 20th century. And then 21st has changed, although there's still not as many, you know, like if you were to really list composers at the forefront. So we're still in this period of like pushing the female composers up and giving them the opportunities so that we can get to that point of equity at all levels. And where we can do it is in our opportunities for young composers so through our Hatched Academy, through our First Nations program, which is a collaboration with the Australian Music Centre and ANU, and through our general commissioning process, I guess. Yeah. We have a noisy women commissioning annual kind of commission for female composers. And, yeah, it's just something that's become really front of mind for me yeah. and something I'm very passionate about also trying to help other people also find their way yeah. no, <laughs> in the nicest possible no, way. It's interesting, I think, if, you know, there's there's a number of big Australian heavy hitters in female composers, you know, Lisa Lim, Mary Finstra, Kat Chernan, Kathy Milligan, Peggy Granville-Hicks, you know, really important names. Now Medley Earthverse is doing such great stuff. But, and there are others. So it's funny, I get a sense, just standing back, I see that there's sort of seems to be a parody, but it's probably not quite there. And I guess... When you just pick the, the big stars, you can get a false impression. How does it look at the grassroots, do you think? If you were not making any effort whatsoever for parity and applications were coming to you, what do you think it would look like at the moment? We just got about 50 applications for Hatched Academy, Composer Intensive, which is the most ever. Now, I haven't been presented by my staff with the uh, stats on those yet, but I dare say there'll be way more than 50% male applicants because there just always is. And I always think of this quote that it was a story that Brené Brown told in one of her podcasts about how she was running a class at the university where she was teaching and she told the students to mark their own assignments like at the very end. Right. And all the guys gave themselves A's and all the girls gave themselves C's oh, pretty much. Okay, wow. And so there is just this intrinsic thing that you do find which isn't going to go away quickly because it's got to do with traits of the gender, I think, if we're just talking about the gender yeah. <laughs> paradigm being two. It. And it's tricky because women are so critical and because we also we haven't had the role models yeah. no over history. There's no female Stravinsky. There's no female Stravinsky. No. Yeah. And, it's a little bit and you can't quantify that. Yeah. We need more... Lisa Limbs and Simone Youngs and, you know, to take over the world. Anyway, that's fantastic what you're doing. I want to ask you because now you're composing more yourself, which is fantastic. When did this come into your you know, creative life? Only out of necessity. <laughs> oh. I don't do it very often, Matthew. I got asked to write a few little film scores and, 
And I've written a couple of waterphone pieces because I know the waterphone better than any other composer. <laughs> All right, explain the waterphone. And I, I thought the waterphone, as wonderful as it is, is a bit of a one-trick pony, unless I'm thinking of another instrument. Well, you can look up one of my pieces, Screeches and Sorrows, on the internet. Okay. <laughs> well, I will do that. I haven't done that. I'll catch that. But explain the waterphone to our listeners. Well, it's just got these kind of like two metal um, plates and a handle, which is also a spout, and then all these metal spokes sticking up around the outside. And you put the pour the water in the middle, which sloshes around and changes the pitch, and then you bow it. That is tends to be the way that most people would play it, especially if you're doing a scary movie score. By the way, I should. I'll give a plug to another podcast here. There's a fantastic podcast called uh, 20,000 Hertz, which is all about sound and music. And they did a special ah. entirely on the waterphone and the person who invented oh. it and the use in horror films. Especially. Richard Waters. Yeah, isn't that insane? I know. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely look into that. There's lots you can do. Let's put it that way. All right, good. I, I look forward to having my horizons broadened and my mind blown. Yeah. Now, look, we're coming to the sort of end of our interview. What I have now is um, a couple of questions from some SYOs. So if you won't mind, this is what we call um, the final bar. Isabel, who plays the flute, asks, could you share one of your first musical memories from your childhood? Okay, so one of my first musical memories is going to meet the music with Richard Gill presenting and loving it, but really not being able to sit still to save my life. <laughs> there is something that has, I, I can sit still now, but I'm very kind of like always doing stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I feel like that memory still persists in my life that I'm always like wanting to see what's around the corner. Right. <laughs> That's good. This is from Alex, who plays the trumpet. He says, he asks, is there an award that you are especially proud of winning? Because you've got quite a few under your belt. Which <laughs> one goes under your pillow at night? Mm, they would all be a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> but the good thing about the Young Performers Award was I didn't get anything <laughs> to go under my pillow. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was back in the day where there, there was no trophy or, well, anything. Maybe there was a certificate, I think. Yeah, I guess Young Performers, because it was my first big award. Yeah is the one I'm most proud of. There were a couple in Europe, one in particular in Wales mm. called the Llanochlan International Instrumentalists yeah. that I beat a whole raft of normal instrumentalists. Normal. Like, normal. You know, I like the use normal. of the word normal. Not percussion. <laughs> Not percussion. And I got really a lot of pounds and that changed my life in relation to the instruments that I could buy oh, wow. and and having superannuation. Fair enough. So those two probably stand out for me. Okay. Maya, who plays the cello, asks, you said you didn't choose the easy route. How hard has it been to, to motivate yourself and, and keep going? It's not hard at all because I didn't choose the easy route. See. So I said earlier I get bored easily and I think this path, does suit me because I like having a kind of cause and for me the cause is helping audiences appreciate and understand new music and music that is often quite foreign to them and helping them with that process and also helping young musicians and, and gender equity and all those things fighting for what I like to call living new music and music that's like really relevant to the here and now. So I think that really helps me get up every morning and spurs me on. Yeah, great. And last question is from Hannah who plays the violin. 
She asks, how do you overcome pre-performance nerves? Well, Hannah might have been playing in my marimba concerto performance with SYO last year. With that one, normally I don't get nervous and that is because I always play from music and I know that I've always got that as my backup. I think if I was to play from memory more, I would probably get nervous, but this has been, that's what I've developed as a professional that works for me. I just played a concerto with the Canberra Symphony Orchestra last week and I didn't get nervous at all. Mm. Because if you're prepared enough and you're also confident on stage, you have enough experience doing it, then you shouldn't really get nervous. With that concerto, I was a bit nervous because I had a bit of a bad cough and I was quite worried I was going to cough during the concerto. And I remember I staved it off and then right at the end, during the cadenza, the really hard bit at the end, it started coming. And my memory of that bit was just like, oh, what am I doing? And I just kept playing. And I think I was kind of coughing. And I remember when I heard, when I watched the video, it just looked kind of normal. And I was like, that is amazing. <laughs> I do not know how I did that. <laughs> Good for you. Well, I was, I was wondering if you were going to incorporate some coughing into your cadenza. Uh, just do it, do it musically. I've occasionally had to release a cough on stage and I wait for a bass drum or, or some big brass entrance to get it out. But you don't, if you, you don't always have that opportunity, do you? No. <laughs> now, that, that work was Ian Grandich's piece, wasn't it, you did last, uh, last month? Fantastic Aussie composer and a fantastic piece. I enjoyed watching and listening to that. We're about to wrap up, but my last question to you was, what's the future hold? What are you looking forward to? Or what's your next big project? I have a new marimba concerto being premiered with the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra in July and it's by Anne Kors and I'm really excited about it. She just sent me the final solo part today to start learning it. She's a good friend and we worked really closely on sort of honing certain bits that weren't, weren't playable and she was great at taking on feedback. I can't wait for that. I'm really, really excited about it. I think it's going to be an awesome piece. Fantastic, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been a delight and you've been as fascinating as ever. I'm going to sign off and, <laughs> and say to our listeners, if you enjoyed this conversation, please share it, rate it, write a review or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. It's always nice to share musical expression and inspiration. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for listening to Tempo, proudly presented by Sydney Youth Orchestras. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to click follow. For more information about SYO, visit syo.com.au.